Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. How are you? Pretty good. Good to be here, as always. It is indeed. Fingers staging a miraculous recovery, <laughs> I think is what we can say. Drew's finger, for those of you that are concerned, there were a few in the audience that were concerned. Drew, thank, you, thank you for reaching out. Drew is alive. I can confirm he's sitting here in front of me. Fennel is not. Fennel, <laughs> Fennel is rotting. He's rotting pretty quickly. Fennel will never be revisited. Um, there were some lessons learned last week that uh, you should always be careful when you're cutting. With a mandolin. With always a mandolin. use the guard. <laughs> always use the guard. No matter how confident you may be, let's turn this into an yeah. investing lesson. Overconfidence is a serious bias <laughs> that you should avoid. And risk aversion is a good approach. If you try to add a mandolin to your portfolio, don't put a guard around <laughs> it. Wrap it in bonds. Like a strategic asset allocation framework, perhaps. Yeah. When <laughs> yeah. Have a limit. Or don't eat fennel. Yeah. Know how much risk you're taking. Uh, this week, I went to the Ladies Finance Club event last night. Shout out to Molly Benjamin. Runs uh, Australia's best ladies finance club. That's why it's called Ladies Finance Club. Um, LFC. Uh, those of you who came along and uh, took part, it was wonderful to catch up in person and have a wine and chat with everyone. Um, down at Lander and Rogers in Melbourne. There's another one in Sydney next week for anyone that's going to the Ladies Finance Club event. I'll see you then. Oh, and quick shout out, Drew. I forgot to mention this last week, which is um, if anyone wants a business book like Mike uh, Kemp's book, The Ulysses Contract, Kate's Buying Happiness book. Um, yeah, Morgan Housel's book as well. I have it. I just got You're it delivered. Right. Yep. Brought it inside, dropped it and ripped the entire spine. <laughs> anyway. Any major street publishing book, so business book, investing book, et cetera, Evan Lucas's Mind Over Money, if you want any of those books, head to the major street publishing website and put in the coupon code RASKXMAS, it's R-A-S-K-X-M-A-S, and you get the books 50% off. So, it's a pretty good deal and you can get them delivered by Christmas if you order ASAP. So, major street publishing, just Google major street publishing finance and business books and see what's there, RASKXMAS. That's all I've got. Drew, if I was to ask you a question off the top of my head, not really, but if I was to ask <laughs> you a question, prepared. What, percentage, what percentage of the ETF market is in thematic ETFs? 
by assets under management or by the number of ETFs issued? Oh, what's your list? Uh, assets under management. Oh, I suggest it would be 30% of assets under management would be in thematic. I feel like the so, biggest ones are VAS and IAZ and no, IOZ and IAF. Yeah, those are some of the bigger ones. But okay, so separate out smart beta though. Smart beta not being thematic. Factor. Yeah, so they're different. It's like still 20%. According to BetaShares, thematic ETF AUM as a portion of the Australian ETF industry sits around 3%. Only 3 All right. I'm overstating. Yeah. Overconfidence bias yet again. Again. (laughs) Smart beta, however, 11%. Running theme throughout this episode. So we know that uh, interest rates were not cut this year um, because the official, the final, sorry, RBA board meeting has <laughs> taken <it>. place. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. We have... Um, we have a loser <laughs> in multiple ways. <laughs> lost part of his finger, lost the bet on... Technically, uh, it's still attached. Well, yeah. It just might still die. Not me, the finger. Ugh. I don't know what it is about people cutting fingers, but when you're like, oh, it's still attached and it could... I can, oh, have you seen the photo? No. I haven't shared the photo yet. But- I can do this live on air. Do you want to put it in the show notes? No, not really. But when people do that, I'm like, oh, yuck. <laughs> like when I see that, I'm like, I can't unsee it. It's like, I don't know what it is about fingers anyway. Um, There's a lot of nerve endings in the finger. I think oh, that's one of the problems. Fingernail ripping yeah. off. I always see that in the, the Denzel Washington movie and you get his fingernails removed. I'm like, damn, that boy's strong. Um What's been going on? We've, actually, let's start with the thing that's really evident. Obviously, RBA come out, kept rates on hold, done. Second thing, uh, advice reforms. What do you think? They've only been proposed. They've only been written about, right? Yeah, there's one round. So, this is part of the quality advice review, and the whole aim is to bring the cost of financial advice down. So, whether it's a statement of advice or ongoing advice, there was one big kind of change that was announced and is in the process of being legislated, which helped. I think we've talked about the need to get like six different forms signed yep. to charge an ongoing fee that someone's already agreed to. Uh, the latest change was a bit big shift uh, and I think it's been met equally with derision, derision, derision. Big words today. And it was basically allowing the super funds and banks and insurance companies to re-enter financial advice, but in more of a niche, maybe it's niche, or more of a general and broad-based way. So, basically introducing a different type of financial advisor. So for myself, degree qualified, postgraduate diplomas, and then finished code of ethics exam, they're proposing, the the government's proposing to add a qualified advisor, air quotes, quotes, uh, that has less education requirement, but has a very limited range of things that they can uh, advise on. I think the big difference apparently is that they can't be remunerated for that advice, which would mean they can only be a salaried employee of the banks, insurance companies, and pension funds. I think having worked at the CBA a long time ago, or sorry, at a bank a long time ago. <laughs> uh, so that's the big yellow there, one. There, there, we, <laughs> there were sales, to, and this was completely legal then, there were sales targets based on you know how much advice you could provide or product you could sell at the time. And I think the risk that comes with this is that they will be salaried, but in some way there's likely to be an incentive, monetary or non-monetary, to service and and help more people because naturally that helps you know retain people in your fund or add people to your fund at the same time. So that's the risk and how the government is able to manage that and be on top of that. I think will be the biggest challenge with this. Um, and the other part was essentially removing the need for a statement of advice, but we still don't know exactly what that's going to look like. You still need something. 
Yeah, whether it's a letter of advice. I mean, we pump out 75-page documents and the most valuable part is like two pages at the beginning, one page about fees, and then this extensive piece of modeling that shows what the what the recommendations will make your situation look like. 10, yeah, I love 20, the summaries in the statement of advice. Yeah. I just, you just go to the statements of advice summary and it's got like a paragraph on each strategy. And, like, and you're boom, done. Done. Exactly. <laughs> um, so it may just be you get that summary and if you want more, we'll provide it. Yeah, I was sitting in the office the other day and I just looked over at the printer and heard a big sigh of relief when this was announced because it was sick of printing off 70 pages Yeah. Um, every time you guys would do a statement of advice. Um, I feel like like having read a few statements of advice in my time, I feel like sometimes, you know, dozens of pages are warranted, but for simple scaled advice, like once-off things, superannuation and a bit of property stuff, you don't need a big bloody thing. But I am concerned a little bit about this whole qualified advice thing. I feel like if they do that, there's going to be have the there should be significant limitations around that. Like, they can't advise on any product issued At by all. their employer. Yeah, like that's just straight out of the game. Like, and no incentive. Yeah, can't be because you can't have. Yeah, I just yeah, I think that's the golden rule there. Sorry to take take that from you. Um, <laughs> is that like if you are an advisor giving advice on a financial instrument or product that's issued by your firm, that should be handled that shouldn't be allowed and it will just stop people recommending their own product don't even need to worry about incentive structures and all that sort of stuff just don't talk about your own products um unless you go through the full statement of advice and everything's called everything's um covered up okay so that was that um solpats trying to buy perpetual perpetual saying no thank you um it was a massive week. Funds management, all kinds of takeover deals and rumors coming through, wasn't there? Yeah. Solpats, a favorite of yours, or Wash? Yeah. Solpats, yeah. Washy. Um, nah, it's souls on that. In, Fingers in, in every pie. Uh, but funds management is their focus because they want to take their investment process and apply it to at scale yeah. through a funds management vehicle. That said, they already have the exposure to funds management. For those of you that don't know, Washington H. Sol Pattinson or ASX SOL is the ticker symbol is uh, Australia's probably most successful conglomerate style business where it owns bunch a bunch of other businesses like TPG Telecom. Uh, it did own for a while their um, pharmacies like uh, Priceline and that sort of stuff, and that's changed. Um, it now focuses mostly on uh, Brickworks. Uh, it's got a stake in uh, Pendle as well, I'm pretty sure. It owns some unlisted companies, a bit of coal in there. Ironbark. Ironbark, yeah. The- kind of distributor and mm-hmm. yeah yep it owns a bunch of small stakes in like small and medium-sized company as well as managing its own portfolio of stocks and uh, it also does something called structured yield structured yield is basically just a fancy way of saying they offered loans to companies yeah yep. like credit private credit yeah uh, which is a rapidly emerging part of the australian financial market and so was i'm gonna have to think back here i'm pretty sure I'm going on record. We're, just, we're recording this straight onto film, mate. It's not getting <laughs> taken out. But um, I'm pretty sure it was Perpetual that took Solpats and Brickworks to court, wasn't it? Probably. I'm going to Google about, this on the- What was that about? About them tr- saying that they need to break it up. Yeah. Perpetual takes Solpats to court. Let's see if this comes up with something. Google- no, probably sh- Perpetual is probably a shareholder in Solpats at the same time. This is the complexity that comes in funds management. Perpetual- you get GQG trying to take over Pacific Current Group. Here's a uh, 2017 article from the AFR. 
Perpetual has asked his federal court to forcibly dismantle the cross-shareholding between Brickworks and Solpats. Um, I remember that, seeing that in the court and how uh, yeah. the Milner family, and in particular Rob Milner, who uh, steers the ship, was just like, <laughs> just letting everyone know what he really thought and good on him for doing that. Um, and that didn't go ahead. So it's ironic now that Solpats is in a position to buy the company <laughs> the that tried company. to break them up. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway- The, the ultimate, t- you know, patient revenge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see in five years, perpetual. Um, but it looks like, because Solpats does own just under a meaningful stake, 9.9%. Um, it looks like they've knocked back the deal, but I wouldn't be surprised if they come back again. There's a lot happening in funds management too. It seems like- being an incumbent fund manager is difficult at the moment, whereas someone mm. like Solpats that is in, in different asset classes, some alternative private markets, mm. and is raising money, there's more growth and more value there. But being an incumbent fund manager, regardless of how much money you have, it's kind of you're being attacked from every angle. New asset classes, passive ETFs, thematic ETFs. Yep. Um, Changes to financial advice. Yeah, exactly. Becoming Platforms. increasingly difficult. And that's why they were saying this doesn't bode well for, potentially for Magellan and Platinum. Which are in a similar, they're smaller than perpetual. Mm. I think they've got over a hundred billion. Um, but as a you know, a threat of takeover offers and this kind of aggressive corporate activity. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting move from Solpats. I didn't expect them to go down this path. If I'm honest, I expected them just to grow a bit more organically first. Yeah, uh, I felt like they could have done that. But the big part of Perpetual's business, a lot of people don't know, is they do a lot of the back office stuff. So a lot of the stuff that's like admin and. Custodial, custodial style first, stuff. Yeah. So if you invest in a managed fund or maybe even an ETF, there's a chance your money's actually sitting in a perpetual building somewhere, um, like in the back office there. It's not actually just on someone's desk. It's like in a digital wallet, but not crypto. Speaking of, Jamie Dimon, um, US <laughs> banking god has come out and said, what, Drew? If get I, rid of it. Yeah, if I could, <laughs> I'd just get rid of crypto flat out. Where's the specific quote here? Uh, I put this in. I did see this in your if notes. If I was a government, I'd close it down. <laughs> Flat out. That is, I mean, as much as you like Jamie Dimon, it's, <laughs> we know that's never going to happen. But it is, uh, not that it's taken you know, relevance away from investment markets. I think just the, as we saw throughout, throughout the pandemic, um, it was just incredibly, the, the regulation couldn't keep up with what was happening in the market. Yeah. Even, and I you think- You can say the same about investment banking. I was talking but. to some- um, uh, tax people this week and they were saying like basically what they did is they the ATO just took like whatever they could apply from stocks and applied it to, to cryptocurrencies and that's basically what they could do at the time because it was emerging so quickly um, the reality is like the I guess the the industry around crypto is quite concerning and in some instances I think people are seeing the use cases that were promised not really taking shape. All that said, Bitcoin is up over 150% this year, Drew. So- I was wrong on that too. Bit of a head nod to you there. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I I think we've been been pro Bitcoin the whole time. Of course, you're very pro, very (laughs) pro. Apart from live events when you say, I think when anyone hands up, puts a head up and say about the old crypto and you boo them outright, boo. So I for think con- you're in the wrong room. <laughs> so for context, at our event this year, when uh, people say, put your, put, put your hand up if you have crypto, and then the half the room goes up and it's like a shaky hand. like They can barely, it's like gravity's just gone three times and they just can't lift their hand up. And we're like, don't worry, we won't judge you for that. And then everyone just chuckles a little bit. Chemist Warehouse IPO, but a backdoor IPO through Sigma. 
uh, chemist warehouse being, what is it, Australia's? I, don't, I haven't seen a prospectus, but it'd have to be Australia's biggest chemist network now, wouldn't Pretty it? Pretty much three billion in revenue and three hundred million in earnings or profit every year. Well, that's bigger um, than API. Privately then. owned, yeah. It yeah. turns out to be, yeah, it was, I think the eight to ten billion dollar valuation valuation puts it in like the top, well into the top fifty. Yeah. Um, in this weird deal, I was trying to explain it last night. Can you explain it better than I can? Well, it looks like it's just a three hundred billion dollar company buying an eight billion dollar company. Yeah, so it's a reverse reverse yeah. listing. Yeah. Um, this happens pretty commonly in the mining sector where there's all those dodgy shell companies out at WA. Uh, it's easier and cheaper for them to do it that way. But you're basically just swapping swapping script, so you're swapping shares. Yeah. Um, and then, then you, uh, they'll get ownership of like 90% of the yeah, of entity the, on the other side. Yeah. And the, um, the, 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 the benefit is that once it's approved, I think that they don't have to worry about listing those shares. So they don't need to go through the full IPO process. And according to the notes, they're only going to sell an additional $350 million of shares. Yeah. So. It's really just a it's a way for people to exit their position to have liquid a liquidity event. Pretty common for small caps. I've, I don't I can't remember the last time I've seen one this big though. Yeah, usually there's two reasons to do an IPO, and this is a reverse IPO. It's to get the founders out. Yeah. And I know the the two families that own Chemist Warehouse have never really because it's a private company. I don't think they've ever really sold mm. any money, and everyone's trying to get them to IPO forever or to raise more money to grow it even mm. further. Um, and I think this is a combination of the two where it's providing some liquidity for that family to, you know, diversify. It was probably yeah. – everyone will see it as take money off the table, but generally it's actually to diversify. Yeah, if you take their point of view, um, they're like, like oh. Yeah, like yeah. Twiggy, every year your whole income is determined by what the iron ore price is doing. And, yeah, chemists are probably more consistent than yeah. that. Uh, and – or to keep growing the business. And it seems like a combination of the two. But the size of the business seems to warrant it being on – a yeah, listed market. It's ready now. I'd say it's yeah. near maturity in Australia. Probably comes as Woolworths and West Farmers are trying to bust into that chemist um, sector mm. as well. There was a rumor for a while there that Chemist Warehouse was the subject of takeover offers and these types of things from overseas groups as well. So it's quite interesting now that they've chosen to list in the ASX. I'm sure the ASX is loving this, by the way, to have a yeah. good listing in this type of market. A big one too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's news. You can buy shares in Chemist Warehouse. I will actually. I will take a look at the prospectus. So, just as an FYI, when companies, I think we get a prospectus and a reverse take. I think we reverse. No, you're one. probably just going to get an announcement. To be honest. Yeah. So sometimes I don't know the case with this. They would have to do some sort of information memorandum for this size. Anyway, normally when a company IPOs, you get something called a prospectus, um, and this is basically the ultimate document that a company has to produce in order to inform investors in the market of what the business actually is. And even if the company isn't brand new, you can use this document for a few years after it lists to really understand the business because they have to go into detail about the industry makeup, the risks, the supply chain, where they get their um, you know, information to make decisions, all this sort of stuff. So it's a really interesting document. So if one is issued, I will definitely read that. Um, Woodside and Santos, I hadn't read this until I saw it in your notes, Drew. Woodside and Santos, both oil and gas majors, one's from Adelaide, one's from WA. Um, it's a big week. <laughs> yeah, potential for two of the biggest <laughs> to be. They always said, you know, Woodside with the merger or taking over the oil and gas assets of BHP became a bit more globally relevant, but yep. they're still small player, bit players in a massive LNG market. Yeah, but I think it, did they said it turned into an eighty billion dollar. Well, I'm just checking that oil now. and gas play. Well, Woodside's currently fifty six billion, uh, and Santos would be considerably smaller, twenty three billion. 
So yeah, yeah that's what you get. And you, you, then you've got a real global giant that can compete with the you know the UAE big players that not quite with the Gazproms, yeah. the, but it has a real say in power on a global on a global scale. So, um, I mean, the investment bankers are making a killing to finish off the end of year and trying well, to get this through before their, their bonuses go. But this one, they they've got cost of living issues as well. Yeah, exactly, investment bankers <laughs> right. stuff up, and particularly when people go reverse takeovers and they don't yeah. probably get the, the that, fees that they'd like. Oh, no, they would be spewing lawyers on Goldman the other side. Spewing that they only yeah. got three hundred fifty million dollars yeah. to sell. <laughs> Should have been three bill. Yeah, but it's super interesting and it's kind of showing um, a lot a lot of companies you know probably use leverage in the last few years to keep growing their businesses interest rates were lower but now more and more they're looking at how do you merge or acquire other companies or merger of semi-equals and gain more relevance and efficiency that way yeah. so it's kind of the trend you see as the cost of capital goes up from our perspective anyway yeah um, but it's still said it's very a lot of hoops, I'd say here, like the Origin deal we saw. Mm. It's two major oil and gas players with kind of sensitive assets in there as well. We've got to release an episode with um, David Lamont from BHP soon. Um, and interestingly, the way when you start talking about a globally relevant resources company, it's quite a different conversation when you talk about one that's a few billion dollars because they just operate on a level where the resources that they need and the asset bases that they need in order to make a dial move is significant. So if Woodside and that do this, this is going to be a big change for their business in terms of, like you said, competition on a global scale. Uh, is there any other news this week you want to get to before we talk about some questions? We're about 20 minutes in. Actually, I've got some hypotheticals for you. And bond deals are set to fall, as, as always. Well, yeah. <laughs> they actually started falling. Yeah, in uh, 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 November, yeah. rather. Uh, we had some positive returns for bond ETFs, Drew. Yes. So there's a marginally time. Po- marginally positive moves in bond ETFs. We're writing this up in our book at the moment, and I tried to. One of the biggest problems we see in Australia and with the clients is that no one understands what a bond is. What's a bond? This is how I, I, I'm going to test this on you, and, we'll, and let's <laughs> see if it works. Don't. <laughs> if it doesn't work, it's a dad joke. Okay. We'll work on it that way. Okay. So I compared shares or equities we have all these words to complicate things and bonds you mean a, stocks yeah <laughs> go on to a personal balance sheet if you think about you own a you own your property or you own an investment property you're thus thus i always use those words word. <laughs> entitled to the growth in that asset or the income you can produce off it you know if it's a house you rent out a room if it's investment property you're renting out the whole house and you have returning or receiving a share of the profit or growth in that is like owning a share in a company, essentially, is on a very personal level. Okay. Then the other side, you have debt that you've used to fund mm-hmm. those. I'm taking myself down a very dangerous line here. <laughs> okay. You have debt that you've used to fund those assets. In that case, you've, in return for the money you've got, which you're using to grow your assets or your business, you're guaranteeing to pay the interest rate that the bank or whoever lent you money, hopefully it's not a loan shark, mm-hmm. uh, in return for, for having that debt. Yeah, private credit in that is what way, you're describing. You are issuing a bond to that person. Yeah. So every one of us that has a mortgage is actually issuing a bond. We're actually involved in the bond market at a very yes. <laughs> very specialized high level. So that was my way with in this retirement book they're working on that tries to personalize and humanize the bond process rather than saying you borrow you're lending money to the Australian government and bond prices go up and down every day. Mm. In fact, it's just a loan between two people, two companies, two anythings uh, in return for which you're getting paid. Okay. 
How many pages is the book? <laughs> 3,000 word chapters by 12. 36,000 words. Oh, yeah. That's not that big. <laughs> That's a good oh, size. Sorry. That's a good size. You don't want a book to be. I feel like, what's the ideal length of a finance book? 200 pages? <laughs> Honestly. Oh, I, you say. I feel yeah. like. Um, I'll come back to your bond analogy in a moment. But, um, I feel like this is like when I try to compare wine to Frank credits on stage. I need to work a bit more on my anecdotes before we get started. Um, I feel like with uh, books, like finance books, I feel like they don't need to be that long. No, I feel uh, like we do it just because they stick it. So the the thickness of the spine actually determines how likely people are to pick the book up <laughs> off the bookshelf. It actually le- yeah. legit. And so the publishers try and force you to write a bit more. Yeah, to get a thicker oh, spine. So yeah, legit and yeah. yeah, yeah. It looks like it's value for money, which is just a ridiculous thing. Imagine getting. Imagine if you you're the author and you're like, okay, I got two hundred pages of absolute golden nuggets here in my golden years book on retirement. So says Drew, and then someone says, oh, you got to write an extra 100 to make the spine thicker. <laughs> You'd be like, what? Chat GPT. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, okay, back to your analogy. So, what we've like tried that. to do in the book is bring real case studies. So, naturally, we, you know, we've got a 180 clients at the moment uh, mm. as part of Waddle, and we've, but on top of that, we've spoken to thousands of families over two decades. Yep. So, what we've tried to do is bring a case study and a real-world example into every chapter to help make it relatable to the people reading it. And I think that's where a lot of authors in this sector don't necessarily have the experience. Mm. Um, but, yeah, can please judge my analogy. No, I think <laughs> it's, it's a bit good. too Thatcherish, that, a bit of a Thatcherism. A Thatcherism. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I feel like it's a good analogy. I feel like the more personal finance things you can bring in, um, the better because it makes it relatable. But what I would say is my word is my bond. Yeah. Uh, and that tells you what a bond is. It's an exactly. IOU, right? So, um, in this instance, I owe you money, so I'm going to pay you back. Exactly. Otherwise? Yeah. Otherwise, default. Yeah. Um, baseball bat. Um, so, read the chapter in the book. And read we'll the chapter in the book. You want to learn about bonds? <laughs> you know still, where to go. It's still in editing mode, so we may change it to my <laughs> word is my bond. When it goes to edit it, backpedal, all backpedal, of Drew's sections get redacted. <laughs> you can hear me backpedaling. <laughs> Jamie's just licking his finger as he just scrolls through the pages and we'll yep. remove that bit and that bit's gone. It <laughs> gets the end. Should just be out for t- Easter next year. Should I just see a tiny little photo of Drew on the front cover and the big photo of Jamie? <laughs> um, Easter next year. That's cool. That's the aim. I mean, we're seven days behind our due date. I think that's normal with I books. I feel like yeah, a lot of people yeah. go well beyond. I'm only one chapter short, so I'm editing a final chapter. What Do you know... Just off the top of your head, what a couple of the chapter, t- like not titles, but like themes in the t- chapters. Themes in the chapters. So, like, are you, have you like broken it down like uh, pre retirement, post retirement, or like superannuation, pensions? So, a bit of everything. Property. One is, so in this book, we've tried to cover both the emotional and financial side of retirement. Naturally, the financial side comes easily to us. Yep. The golden rules and all these sort of concepts. But we look at, so the long road that is retirement, the different ways you can retire. Uh, different times and the different experiences, the emotional side that comes with that. So, someone like John Glass. Mm-hmm. Then go into the specifics of when, how much do you need, how do you invest it, how do you deal with the anxiety that comes with moving from an active to a passive income, something we talk about all the time. Yep. Then deep diving on asset classes and maybe a little bonus chapter on the best caravan parks in Australia. Uh-huh. <laughs> little, you know where's a really good caravan park? Just north Jayco, of t- please sponsor. Just north. <laughs> <laughs> Just north of Townsville, there's a lovely caravan park. They're very busy. Um, okay, so I've got. To, I'll give you one hypothetical before we get to the team's questions here. Um, are small cap stocks cheap? Cheaper than they were. 
I was asking, this has been one of both of our, and this is, I'm, I'm pointing, on. you know, I've said interest Four rates. Words in my would, mouth. I'd said interest rates would um, <laughs> fall and you said small caps were the best buy. I think we both said that, didn't we? Or global smalls. Yeah. Uh, I think smalls huh. globally and domestically have continued to kind of trade at um, more at lower and higher and higher discounts, essentially. Um, the challenges that have, I mean, we've seen the Magnificent Seven, so Apple, Microsoft and all these companies dominate returns for the last uh, six, 12 months, mm -hmm. and smaller companies have just remained out of favour, regardless of the fact that most of them, this sectors themselves are starting to perform a lot better mm. financially. Um, year to date, small ordinaries, the ASX small ordinaries here in Australia. So this is the companies between the ASX 100 and ASX 300, so that 200 mix in there. Um, how many, uh, sorry, not how many, there's 200 companies. What is the return year to date for the ASX Small Ordinaries Index, just year to date. Negative 12%. Negative 0.2%. Oh, I was negative. It's pretty good. Um, so year over year, it's uh, if we had an extra few days there, it's uh, 3% down. Okay, so interesting. Uh, if we do answer your question today, which we do love to hear you, from you, please write into us via the link in your, sh your podcast player if you're on Apple, if you're on Spotify, there is a link in your podcast player right now that says, ask a question. Select the Australian Investors Podcast and your question will come through to us. Uh, we don't know your personal circumstances, your needs, your goals, or your objectives. For example, if you want to go to one of these caravan parks that Drew's talking about. So the best place to go for that type of advice that is tailored to you is a financial advisor, like say Drew here and the team at Waddle Partners for Retirement. You can find a link to financial planning in your podcast player. If we mention ETFs or super funds or other shenanigans like that, please remember that you should read the product disclosure statement and TMD that is available on the issuer's website. You want to do that before you invest in the thing. Okay. Mr. Hin writes in and says, if I want to invest with a new fund or portfolio manager slash advisor, is it possible to transfer some of my existing shares or ETFs into the fund so I don't have to pay tax on all of the capital gains that I've already mowed. Illy, thanks, bros. Yes, the answer is, if you want to yes. transfer money, so say, for example, like I'm going to put words in your mouth, Drew. Um, say, for example, you want to see your financial planner and the financial planner says to you, we would like to, you know, have you yeah, exactly. your SMSF put yeah. on a platform. Or if, for example, you approach a fund manager um, and you have an existing portfolio, there's a thing called an in-specie transfer, it also happens between brokerage accounts, where you are still the legal owner, all that has changed is where it is held. So under the law, you can effectively transfer the shares that you own or the ETFs or the units in a managed fund that you already own to the new structure. Yeah. That, that means you don't need to sell out of all of the ETFs you already own. So say, for example, you are looking to invest in a portfolio that has the VAS ETF from Vanguard and you already own the VAS ETF, you can transfer that in and they can do what's called an in-specie transfer. Uh, and it's a, there's paperwork that's available to wherever you're transferring. Um, there is paperwork that's available. If you have a HIN, a holder identification number, like a, a chess-sponsored broker, it's much easier, it's quicker. But you can do it with other types as well. It does depend on the type of advisor you're talking to and what kind of yeah. money or the way they manage money at the same time. Yeah. So the first thing, we we are quite flexible. 
when we when someone comes to Waddle, we do direct equities, we do ETS, we do funds, we use platforms, and mm-hmm. naturally, all what we first try and do is recommend what we think the changes should be to what you have. But plenty of times, people, you know, we see this as a work in process progress. Mm-hmm. Plenty of times, people say I prefer to keep these assets, so we involve them and then adjust our recommendations according to what they would like to 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 retain. But there are a lot of groups where they basically have a single product so it can be difficult whether it's an SMA or a managed account where sometimes you can transfer a share in but a lot of the time they just want you to sell everything you have and go into a single product so it's making sure you're aligned with the advisor and the approach they have Um, but generally it's fine to transfer assets onto any platform Yep, and always hold your ground if that's what you want to keep make sure you agree with all the recommendations that are being provided. Absolutely good point. Mining for Jamie Diamonds which is a great name by the way Mining for Jamie Diamonds says I'm a younger investor, my early 20s, currently trying to build a portfolio with a satellite and core. I'm very much a risk-on type of person and a big growth type of guy. Considering age, and I'm thinking the market will be material or higher in a few years to come, my question is around portfolio construction after seeing big swings after reporting season. How do you prevent being overexposed, especially when you hold stocks directly and in an ETF, letting winners run, backing my picks, still accumulating and managing risk, i.e. if you are holding agricultural stocks in the most recent quarter, you would have experienced a 10% swing in the most recent month, making you overexposed in a standard core portfolio. I'm actually going to jump in here, Drew. and I'm a gonna, tough one. I'm going to say to Mining for Jamie Diamonds, you have given us way too much information uh, on your personal circumstances here. Um, and we unfortunately cannot answer this type of a question without, I think, going too close to the line. So I can say them some things about frameworks. Sure, let's like, talk about yeah. let's talk generally about frameworks. But in the future, mining for Jamie Diamonds. Just as an FYI, we don't like to see a lot of information on things like your, your implied version of risk, your age, your current goals, and these types of things because we cannot. Uh, legally, unfortunately, give any type of advice if this is the case. So please speak to your financial advisor. Now, I'm going to reframe the question here, Drew, and talk about when you're a younger type of investor, generally speaking. Um, and by the way, Drew's a big type of a big growth guy as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, if you look at my, my private holdings, yeah, sure. <laughs> Just kidding, he's yeah. not. But um, so the biggest single holder of IAM. <laughs> so I think I'm the- not. Disclosure. <laughs> So, uh, I just want to generalize this question and say, if you just have a portfolio of stocks, how can you think about building a portfolio around that for the long term? A core portfolio. I think for us, it always comes down to frameworks. So, when whether you you know the first part is what level of risk are you comfortable with, and are you you know there's one side of the story that says you can hold ten stocks, feel like you diversify, but taking that risk is great for uh, long-term returns if you're able to be patient. But mm-hmm. the, the problem is that most people uh, aren't patient and aren't, and most people act at some point emotionally or, yes. or irrationally. <laughs> you can hurry up. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I think for w- w- what we try to do is build a framework and know you, you've started with the right point, which is knowing everything that you hold and what's held within your ETFs. So a lot of people actually don't go to the, the level of comparing understanding the underlying investments in their ETF and there's so much overlap even between uh, ETFs. But we just say it starts naturally at asset allocation level and then drumming down into each of the individual asset classes, so Australian shares and international shares. 
because we manage money for retirement, we want a, an even split of sectors, not necessarily companies, but you want a reasonably even split of sectors. Uh, and it's a similar story when you look overseas as well. So it's making sure, and that's all about building a portfolio that's resilient to to different outcomes. So we'll be half-half international and Australian. We'll be split across as some sort of exposure in every sector, but that's all part of a framework that begins at the top before we even think about what stocks we're holding. Yeah, so I like it. Without answering the question, yeah, yeah, I w- <laughs> it's what are you? What's the purpose of your investing? And start with the end in mind. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I might just add on one thing here. Obviously, we can't really answer this question, but um, there was a a line in here that went, "I'm thinking the market will be material high, materially higher in years to come." Um, so everyone thinks that yeah everyone has a view on whether something is going to be higher or lower like i could walk downstairs to the restaurant where we're recording this above and i'm sure i could ask two people and i'd get two different opinions on where they think the stock market's going in all my years of doing this i haven't come across anyone who knows where the stock market is going with any accuracy and i mean that sincerely like i think the best answer that anyone's ever come up with uh, I can't remember who said it back in the day. Maybe it was Keynes. We'll just attribute to him. And when he was asked by a reporter, what would the stock market do today, sir? And he said, it will fluctuate. <laughs> <laughs> and fluctuating is up and down, yeah. not just down. In the long-term historical returns of the stock market, it's probably the most sensible thing. If anyone says to you, what do you think the stock market will do this year? You could probably say, it will fluctuate, but on average, it's probably somewhere between <laughs> 5 and 13%. Yeah. But I don't know. <laughs> and so what I mean to say is like we don't know these things with any certainty. So that like Drew says you build like a framework which is kind of like the bars that you put up when you go 10 pin bowling which I, I know Drew does quite <laughs> regularly. <laughs> I needed it recently when I bowled. <laughs> with the finger imagine yeah. you're trying to <laughs> shove your finger in there right now. <laughs> it wouldn't work. Uh, you have to get that thing that wheels the ball down oh, onto yeah, the I'm, I'm not a toddler. <laughs> Uh, I went Timpin Bowling the other day and saw some people using that who were adults. Um, <laughs> Was it you? <laughs> should have been. I would have done better. Um, but anyway, it's really important. Like, I think in my time doing this is one of the best things you can do to try and predict what your future wealth might be is to look backwards. Sounds weird, but if you study history, you'll see that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme over the long term. I own a jet ski. Says Re- reference to <laughs> my snobbishness last week. Yes, appreciate it. Yes, uh, Note- <laughs> noted. Uh, they st- they end the question, which we might start at. I know you can't give personal investment <laughs> advice, but should I sell my jet ski? This is a lifestyle versus financial. Yeah, we, we asset, actually so, yeah. can tell yeah, you what to do with the jet yes. ski. <laughs> Get rid no of offense. it. Save everyone the trauma. <laughs> 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 you just look over at the beach no, and you just ski. hear like your face vibrating from all the jet skis. I grew ski up noises. on jet skis. Oh, my gosh. Up on the Murray River. Ah, okay. That's a bit different. Murray Cod, thank you yeah. for that. Murray um, Crayfish, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Owner Jet Ski says... <laughs> Uh, late 30s and currently manage all my investments, shares, crypto, SMSF. At what point do I start to think about having all of these investments managed by a professional? I love the work you guys do, plus equity mates, in relation to helping educating us investors. And But does there come a point in time where the risk flush benefit and costs should see me pivot? And how would you think about this in relation to age, the value investments? How do we think about it generally? Um, okay, so this is a great question because it's like, when do you get advice? And I think personally, um, 
direct stock investing should only be really considered by people who are truly passionate about it, have the time to do it as well. Um, I would say that for most people, the cost benefit is, it's really, it depends in Drew's lingo. I would say that at $100,000, you can maybe start to justify the cost of a good financial advisor, yep. but you're going to be paying minimum $4,000, $5,000. So some of that can be paid through super if they give you super advice. So at the end of the day, you want to, I mean, you want to have made progress, I think, before you see someone. If you're in debt, you can you see a financial counselor for free uh, and they're great. Um, but I think the other time that you would want to see a professional pretty early in your life is around major life events like weddings, buying a house, starting a business, getting a divorce, getting an inheritance. These are all great times to have the advice of a professional because it can save you thousands of dollars in tax. Finally, you should see a professional when you do this. You go into Nevexa, who is our new portfolio tracking partner here at RASC. See the link in the show notes for a discount on Nevexa to track your shares and ETFs. You go into your Nevexa account, you upload all of your investments, and you see, well, my portfolio has gone up 2% for the past five years. That's time to outsource. <laughs> now it's time to get someone to do it for me. And that's okay if you just haven't had uh, the best of luck managing your own portfolio and you think, it's time to let a professional do this. Even if it's not all your money, let them do a majority of it. And that could be at any dollar value at any age. We're not here to say what's right and wrong, I guess. What do there's you think? A, and there's a lot of different ways to think about this as well. So there's naturally, um, as your portfolio grows, I think when you think about financial advice, though, it goes go beyond investments. So a lot of the time, the trigger for that advice and this, not necessarily professional investment management is other parts, whether it's your, your mortgages, your insurance, or you're starting to want to think about superannuation. Uh, but I mean, the big one we see is poor performance or poor decisions because most people don't necessarily have a framework when they're managing money themselves and that's yep. where a lot of clients have been coming from lately but for some people you don't as much as we think everyone should have some level of advice if you're doing well and you've got a strategy and you're sticking to it sometimes you're better off not having advisors because we've had plenty of relationships where it you know, advice isn't accepted or it's, it goes both ways and neither mm. party is, is getting value out of it mm. um, and their relationships are I think that aren't sustainable so but other big reasons are when you lose time and interest so if you're in your 30s you might have children you might move you might travel your job might become more demanding so when you don't have the time to commit that you need to is very important uh, and big one would be the bigger thing would be you don't necessarily have to outsource it to a financial advisor all at the same time so if you're investing in direct stocks and crypto it could be as simple as going to vanguard or buying a series of managed funds rather than worrying about direct you know, daily stock movements yeah. and building a portfolio that's requires less input on a daily basis. So there's kind of those different levels on that spectrum. Yeah, there's if it's just the investing component that uh, you need solved, you can just go and get one of those diversified index funds or speak to or go and look at the ETF portfolios. Like we have a service for people like you, Jetski. Um, call it Rascore. It's a membership service and you just pay a monthly fee and you get to see what ETFs and things I've put together so you can go and you can join the community ask questions these types of things and it's pretty cheap there's a link in your show notes um, and that's that, like we keep members up to date when we make changes with ETFs and that sort of stuff it's really simple low cost investing so check it out um, before we've got time for two more questions Drew um, I actually the way we ramble yep yeah I quite like this one 
um, Dora the ETF Explorer, and I like the next one as well, to be honest. Uh, I'm investing regularly for my newborn, which is wonderful. I have half invested in the NASDAQ 100 and half invested in the X20 ETF, I think it is. However, after considering stories like, quote, I bought CBA shares at $5, now I get paid $5 in yearly dividends, end quote. Also, sure, there's a capital gain. I've wondered what ETF options I might have that present conservative growth prospects, but are also likely to grow their yield over the next 18 to 25 years so that she has an income component as well, you know, rather than looking to trigger CGT events and rebalance. Good question, Dora. Um, 9% of the RASC audience invest for their children or the next generation. So you're definitely not alone. Drew, long-term investing, people like to invest for kids. They like to see that compounding over time, but they don't want to spend a lot of time managing the portfolio. So how does someone go about doing that? Yeah, I think this the combination of you know outsourcing to an ETF or a managed fund provider, I always think it's con- not concerning, but we have to be careful not narrowing it too much because mm-hmm. the ETF market's growing, but it is very much limited to thematic and very specific index ETFs. And the problem we've seen with that is the I'm answering a different question, but the problem with the, the, the other part of the question is that the concentration that comes into into ETFs in Australia and overseas that you end up getting banking and financial sectors. Mm. So if you there are a lot of managers and approaches that do focus on that growing income cohort of companies. I think it's, you know, it's so rare to find a CBA at $5 yeah. or a CSL at $2. Pilbara might be an example, but Pilbara went through a very long oh, period yeah. of time and a lot of hell before it got to where it was today. Going through some at the moment. Yeah. That's the next question. Yeah. So finding, it's in our view, it's more about finding a, a sustainable group of companies, whether that's through professional or index management, uh, that are committed to both in reinvesting in themselves and increasing the payments that are going out to customers because there's, I think, one of the golden rules, I plus G equals total return. Oh, I plus G you is and your maths. But the, the growth doesn't just refer to capital growth. It refers to growth in the income mm-hmm. at the same time. So um, I think it's uh, it's the way we view investing, which is the importance of a sustainable growing income. I know a group called Martin Curry, who we caught mm-hmm. up with. I'm not sure if you met Reese Bertles over there, but their entire philosophy is based around reinvesting in grow- companies that are both growing profits and growing their dividends at the same time. Um, and it's, I mean, like everything, you can combine both. Mm. Um, yeah. Some active and some passive, some direct, some indirect. Yeah. Um, I take a slightly different approach, but similar in the sense that I think ETFs are a great way to do it because you get a basket approach. Uh, and I did a, just a quick bit of crunching the numbers. In twenty, the year 2014, um, that was back when we were on iPhone 5. I don't know what it was, but um, that's how I think about the world. When did the iPhone come out? Oh, yeah, 20, uh, 2007. All right, that's when my life started. Um, so, uh, <laughs> sure. so, so in the year 2014, the Vanguard Australian Shares ETF, or VAS for short, paid 300 cents per share in distributions. Fast forward to 2023, it has paid 350 cents. So it's paid a little bit more not every year, but consistently over time. Not only that, the share price has kind of gone up a little bit. Um, so you're getting the compounding there too. One way you can reinvest those dividends is through a DRP that you can set up through computer share or link market services or whatever. And you can slowly just keep reinvesting those. And I think 
it's a misconception to think that you can only get compounding through individual stocks. I think you can do it through many different ways, but one of those ways is um, if you're concerned about CGT, is an ETF. The good thing about an e- index ETF is the turnover is really low, so you don't crystallize a lot of tax. A listed investment company can do it as well, but they, um, they're a company structure, and I'm sure you can do individual stocks as well. So that's a good question because a lot of people do that, like what should I invest for my kids and that sort of stuff. Um, the final question before I've got time to answer, Drew, and it's actually before our memory card freezes up because I've realized we've been recording all day with the other the ladies oh. in here with the podcast and we didn't empty it out. So well, Something's got to put an end to our rambling. Something, thank heavens it's the technology. Pull the pill, question mark, and this is a wonderful question. It's just a cheeky kind of one at the end here. Um, gentlemen, long-time listener, first-time writer, inner. In the AFR this week, there was an article about the short selling of Pilbara Minerals, ASX, PLS. What is a short sell and why would hedge funds be piling money into the stock falling? Drew, now, I, I know you've been preparing for this book, so I feel like there might be an analogy here in the offing. Oh, not very good for these ones. <laughs> I mean, there's a few reasons for short selling. So the concept of short selling is that you borrow sh- stock or shares from someone that for Pilbara that you don't own shares in Pilbara. You borrow it from someone, you pay them for it, like yeah. a, a loan, like a bond. For oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, and then you sell those shares on the market, yep. uh, and on on the basis that the you know the share price will will fall uh, mm-hmm. or it'll keep falling, and then you think that the value of that company is going to be worth less. But at some point, you have to give those shares back to the person you borrowed them from mm-hmm. as like a bond. Mm-hmm. You have to give the principal back. I owe you, yep. Which means you have to go back into the market and buy them. So essentially, when you're shorting, you're making a bet or you're hoping or expecting or forcing, not forcing, <laughs> that'll be market control. You're watching the clock very closely. <laughs> My <laughs> anecdotes tend to ramble. <laughs> that the share price will fall and you better buy it back at a lower level and thus make a profit uh, when, when you do that. Why would you do it? I mean, if you're trying to be nice, sometimes these companies have a massive exposure to the ASX. They might hold, you know, Australian Super might have a massive book of BHP and all these companies and they're trying to reduce their exposure to some of those companies. That's being nice. Uh, for others, it can just be the fact that if you're only buy, allowed to buy stock then you and say you're only investing ASX 100, mm-hmm. you only have 100 investments you can invest into. If you're able to short and bet that that stock will go in the other direction, your universe doubles to 200. So you've got a more diverse range of levers you can pull to generate returns. Mm. So in the case there's of this, for those of you that aren't familiar, lithium prices, which is the main commodity that Pilbara sells, um, I believe it's pronounced uh, Pilbara is how we say it here in Victoria. Uh, not Pilbara. Uh, Pilbara Minerals, Minerales, uh, sells something called lithium. Lithium is used in batteries and lithium prices have fallen dramatically in 2024. There goes that idea, says everyone who bought in 2020, um, 2022. Sorry. Um, and so basically, people are saying, well, the lithium market is in oversupply. There's too much lithium on the seaborne market. So the prices have fallen. For a company like Pilbara that basically only sells this commodity, we think the stock is overvalued. And so the hedge funds come in and they start to borrow stock, as Drew was saying, buy it at $100, for example, sell the shares. They borrow at 100 not buy it. They borrow it at 100 sell the shares, take their 100 bucks, watch it fall to 50 
buy it back in at 50 and hand the shares back with a bit of interest and they take the $50 difference. And that's what short selling is. And um, I think the, for most mere mortals like myself, it's not really worth doing uh, because it is the thing about short selling that needs to happen is you need to be right about the company that you're trying to short. So you need to be able, yeah. you need to be able to be sure that it is going to fall. And secondly, you need to be able to be certain when it's going to fall because the longer you have the position, the more interest you have to pay to the company that you've borrowed the shares from naturally because you borrowed it. It's like an interest payment. So that's that. But there's another thing that happens as a third element with short selling is when you buy an individual stock, let's say you buy shares of Pilbara today and it goes up. I don't know what the share price is, but let's say it goes up 50%. That's great. But it could go up 500% and you'd be fine. You'd just yep. be laughing all the way to the bank. Now, it could go down 100% and that's your maximum loss. But if the reverse happens, let's say the share price, you've shorted it and the share price goes up, you can lose much more, more than you put down. Exactly. But you can only ever gain 100% because it can only ever fall 100%. So, it's a very risky thing for many people to do. That's why only professionals really do it. Um, some traders do it through different instruments, but for the most part, it's very risky. It's very easy to short sell a commodities company because they're typically very volatile. They're typically dependent on commodity prices, but they typically need to be larger like Pilbara and not tiny ones because you can't get the stock to short. I hope that answers your question, but basically as Drew said, it's to protect a company's balance sheet, uh, protect a, a fund's balance sheet, and you, you're betting against the cyclical nature of that company's stock. There is, an, there is a podcast coming out, uh, Pull the Pill, with BHP. Uh, this podcast will contain an interview with David Lamont from BHP, and he talks about why BHP has never moved into lithium. Yeah. And it's just for this exact reason. So not for the short selling, but for the oversupply reason. So check that out. And they say it's to keep an efficient market. Yeah. That if companies get overvalued, hedge funds or shorters will come in and make sure it mm. trades back. But there's yeah. also a very... Uh, negative view on it at the same time. Activist short selling is something that's probably a bit more yeah. frowned upon when they come out with a report and make a media blitz about it. I've got a zinger of a dad joke this week. Okay, you got the dad joke. I'm going to select the uh, best question to name this week as mining for Jamie Diamonds. Now, mining for Jamie Diamonds, you did ask us a question that we simply couldn't answer because you gave us too much of your personal information. Uh, but I did love the name and it just so happens to tie in with Jamie Diamond calling crypto... Uh, calling for crypto to be shut down. So, on multiple dimensions, you win. Um, and if you do want to write into us, you can claim a free prize, which is the Value Investor Program on Rask Education. It's normally four hundred ninety-nine dollars of a course, but you get it for free if you write into us at Rask. Uh, so, the way it normally works is Drew let sends us off into the sunset with a beautiful dad joke, given his skills. Um, but also. You should, be, you should know that if you want financial planning advice, you can head to the link in your podcast player that says financial planning, get match with the financial planner and away you go. Uh, if you want to get contact directly with Drew, you can find him on Twitter, dmitty13 is his ticker handle. I've never mentioned that before, but that's his ticker handle, dmitty13. Hit him up, he says. Uh, but seriously, head to the link in your show notes or head to waddlepartners.com.au. You can find out more about me. Uh, Owen Rask, you can find a link in the show notes there too if you want to join our community of investors. So, Drew, now we're over to you. Let's Hopefully we run out of time go. before I get to say the joke. Memory card's like, quick, 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 get it in. All right. So, this one's particularly relevant this week, given my injuries to my <laughs> right hand. finger. <clears throat> yep. Right hand. 
Why should you never brush your teeth with your left hand? I have no idea. Because a toothbrush works better. And that's uh, signing off for another week of the Australian Versus podcast. I've left the host, Owen Rask, speechless. What a joke. Enjoy uh, your weekend. Enjoy your weekend. Thank you for uh, listening. We'll be back next Saturday to answer your questions. Send them in. As always, it was a bit of fun. Drew, thanks for joining me. Good to see you. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.